Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we will attempt to understand as many of the interlocking elements as possible in the current Middle East conflicts, sparked most prominently by the ongoing genocide in Gaza. Sources today include Democracy Now!, The Inquiry, Intercepted, and AmeriCast, with additional members-only clips from Intercepted and The Majority Report. I think that in my 20-plus years of covering the war on terror, uh, this is the most dangerous moment in uh, for the Middle East um, that, that I've seen professionally. Um, you talk about there being uh, the possibility of a full-blown regional conflict. We're at least at half-blown now. Consider what the battlefields are and have been in this conflict. Gaza, obviously the most important one, uh, the most devastating uh, to humanity, where the Palestinians are experiencing what could and uh, probably should be understood as a genocide, um, but also southern Israel, northern Israel, southern Lebanon, northwestern Syria, Beirut, northeastern Syria, Erbil, Baghdad, southwestern Yemen the Red Sea, Pakistan as well. Uh, this is now a conflict with battlefronts ranging across the region, each of which uh, facing pressure to escalate as their uh, various combatants' um, objectives are not fully achieved. We shouldn't think that absent an active act of de-escalation that this won't continue spiraling outward throughout 2024. And Spencer, this whole idea that the, we, we hear almost every day some member of the Biden administration say that they're trying to prevent an escalation uh, of the conflict in the region, uh, when in fact their actions uh, are quite the opposite. That's right, Juan. Uh, we heard the Biden administration say most recently that it was deeply concerned about escalation in Lebanon. Well, just in the last 24 hours, uh, the Israeli Air Force has been bombing southern Lebanon, bombing what it says are Hezbollah positions there. But also the United States has taken direct action, not just in the Red Sea, but also on Yemeni soil itself. Uh, multiple times, uh, three times at least, including most recently yesterday. And as well, uh, recently, it carried out its first drone strike in Baghdad since 2020, which has now strained U.S.-Iraqi relations. So the United States, while it might say that it's seeking to contain the conflict, is caught up in the logic of escalation. And that means we shouldn't give the, the Biden administration a pass on this. Uh, these aren't, you know, automatic gravitational forces. These are the accumulations of choices that Biden and his team are making to involve the U.S. more deeply in this spiraling conflict, all of which could be stopped if the United States used its immense influence over Israel to restrain it or stop it from carrying out its collective punishment of Gaza. We, we often hear as well about the access of resistance supposedly uh, controlled or financed by Iran, uh, but uh, very little about the access of empire of the UK, uh, the United States uh, and Israel uh, in the region. Uh, to what degree does this access 
uh, have more uh, right to control the affairs of the region than those who are actually uh, uh, from countries there. Quite well said, Juan. Without ceding any of Iran's claims to regional hegemony, the United States and its allies act as if they are the representatives of the natural and just order of the Middle East and not, in fact, Western impositions upon the aspirations of uh, the citizenry, the people of these countries to determine their own affairs. And we are seeing that um, quite starkly, uh, most recently in Yemen where one of the most war-devastated countries in the Middle East, as a result of not only U.S. strikes against um, al-Qaeda targets, what the United States says is al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, stemming from um, something like 15, over the past 15 years, but also a U.S.-backed Saudi and Emirati um, campaign that lasted seven years before a ceasefire took hold in 2022 that brought not only famine, but cholera to this country um, that has been engulfed in a foreign-backed, foreign-sponsored, um, and foreign-accelerated civil war. Nevertheless, even among people who don't accept the Houthi movement as the legitimate um, uh, rulers of Yemen, saw massive demonstrations after the United States and its Western allies started bombing Yemen in retaliation for the Houthi attempt uh, to relieve the siege of Gaza. So you really have the ex you really have on full exposure um, the rejection of U.S. claims uh, to, you know, standing for for peace and stability in the region. So, Helen, could you give us some uh, background, though? What are the origins of this movement and how is it that they came to play such a prominent role in Yemen? Yeah, so the Houthi movement started in the 1980s, 1990s. I think what you need to understand is that in terms of religious sects, Yemen is divided into two basic sects, the uh, Sunni sect of call of Shafi'is who basically live in the majority of the country and a branch of Shi'ism called the Zaydis who live basically in the mountainous highlands of Yemen. And the Houthis are uh, Zaydis. And they, in that sense, and they are, and again, within the Zaydi movement, there's a certain variety in the sense that the Houthis, I would say, are extremist Zaydists and they are, de they've developed their ideology and their policies to strengthen their own branch of Zaydism. And they basically emerged in response to the rise of Sunni Salafi fundamentalism within their own area in the far north of Yemen. And so there have been conflicts and, and problems, you know, arising since the 1990s. Between 2004 and 2010, there was a series of six wars between the Houthis facing and fighting the then regime of President Ali Abdullah Saleh. And the, this ended basically, each one ended with a ceasefire, which was promptly broken. The reason the last one in 2010 was not broken as, as a result of the uprisings in 2011 of the, you know, known as the Arab Spring in various places. And uh, that was a moment when the Houthis joined 
with the revolutionaries and basically took a position against where, you know, they continued their position against the regime. So they then were for during the what was a transition, supposedly a transition period between the Saleh regime and what should have become a more democratic regime in 2014, the Houthis then changed their alliances and indeed Saleh changed his alliance. So they operated together uh, against the transitional government. And as a, and then eventually that allowed them to take over the capital, Sana'a, in 2014, and then to oust the existing um, transitional government in early 2015. And that's when really the, the war started, which was then internationalized for March 2015 with the intervention of what was known as the Saudi-led coalition, which was basically a coalition led by the Saudis and the Emiratis with a few other states with minor roles, but supported actively by the US, the U U U Europeans and the British and others. And what was so the point at really which, sorry, just to clarify, what was the point at which the Iranians uh, started backing the Houthis? Was it in the moment uh, when uh, the Saudi-led uh, bombing began in uh, 2015, or was it prior to that? And if you could also clarify the distinction between, as you said, the Yemenis are uh, Zaydi Shias, and to what extent Zaydis are ideologically or theologically aligned uh, with the dominant form of, of Shiism in Iran? And what that has yeah. to do with Iran's uh, uh, complicity or support for Houthis, whether or not now they, they do, as, as Iran says. Yeah, thank you for, the, for bringing up these points. The Iranian role at the time in 2015, when we're in the internationalized civil war started, was minimal. The Iranian involvement with the Houthis and prior to that and since then has always been connected with uh, partly theological connections, but differences. The, so in that sense, the Houthis are differentiating, the, differentiating themselves from other Zaydis by having adopted a number of the rituals and activities and approaches of the Iranian uh, Twelvers. It's all a matter of how many imams they trust or they believe in after after the Prophet Muhammad. But in practice, uh, the Houthis are getting closer to the Iranians in uh, to the Iranian Shi'is over the last decades. But they are still sorry the last decade. But they are still you know quite distinct. So the alliance is much more a political alliance. And the Iranian involvement, which was really very, very insignificant at the beginning of this war, has increased over time and, ha and is primarily, you know, has been uh, for a while mainly financial and uh, provi providing fuel and things like that to the Houthis, but more recently has been much more focused on military activities and primarily on the supply of advanced technology. Uh, if you look at the Houthi weaponry, and I'm no military expert, but the Houthi weaponry originally was basically a lot of uh, scuds and other Russian-supplied materials and also some American-supplied materials to the Saleh regime. And these have been upgraded and improved and changed to some extent thanks to, um, to, to Iranian support. So in that sense, you have more 
the Iranian involvement has become greater. But it's very important to note that the Houthis are an independent movement. The Houthis are not Iranian proxies. They are not Iranian servants. They don't do what the Iranians tell them to do. They make their own decisions. If their decisions and their policies can coincide with those of Iran, then, you know, there's no issue. But if they don't, they don't do it. So it's very important, I think, to destroy this myth of, you know, Iran-backed Houthis in a single word, as if um, it's kind of a conglomerate. It, that is not the case. The Axis of Resistance Axis of Resistance is a loose coalition of mostly non-state actors across the Middle East in Lebanon, Hezbollah, Shia militias in Iraq, Hamas, the Houthis, that are essentially allies of Iran. Nega Mortazavi is a journalist, host of the Iran podcast, and senior fellow at the Center for International Policy in Washington, D.C., so these allies essentially are seen by Tehran ideologically as a resistance to their big enemy, the United States, and also their small enemy, Israel, in the region. In 2002, U.S. President George W. Bush described Iran, Iraq, and North Korea as an axis of evil which posed a threat to world peace. And so the axis of resistance is an opposite play on that axis of evil saying, no, we're not evil, we're actually resisting you, the United States, that has caused all the trouble in our region, and we won't stop fighting and resisting until this ends. Several military personnel were injured in a recent missile and rocket attack on an airbase in western Iraq, which hosts US troops. The Islamic resistance in Iraq, an umbrella group said to be linked to Iran, has claimed responsibility. Nega Mortazavi says it's important to know that Iran's direct airstrikes into neighbouring countries lies beyond the axis. The skirmishes on the Iran-Pakistan border is fairly unrelated. That has to do with a separatist ethnic Baluchi group, which has had trouble with the central government. The Iranian government sees them as a terrorist group and has been uh, going after them. It's something that Iran is dealing with simultaneously. So all of these, I would say, are connected to each other in the big picture, but the Pakistan border is kind of on the other side of the country and not really part of this big axis of resistance that we're talking about vis-a-vis -vis Iran and Israel. Most of the axis of resistant groups have been designated as terrorist entities by some Western states. Coalition members have different aims, but share a broader goal. The Houthis in Yemen were an insurgency that emerged about two decades ago as a resistance for the demands of their own ethnic population. The Lebanese Hezbollah was also a resistance in response to the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. So at some point, Iran has realized that, okay, this group has shared goal in resisting what they see as this bigger enemy, the U.S. meddling Israeli presence in the region, and so they have connected to them. Yemen's Houthis consider Israel an enemy. The group has increased attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea since the start of the Israel-Gaza war in order to show support for fellow Axis of Resistance member Hamas. 
In response, the UK and US have carried out a second round of airstrikes on Houthi bases in Yemen. The groups do take cues from Tehran. They get financial support, they get weaponry, they get logistical support, they get political support. But they also have autonomy. They're not part of the Iranian armed forces, but they do work in tandem. So what does Iran get in return? This is an insurance policy. This is a way for them to fight the world's most powerful army, which is the U.S., and also the region's most powerful army, Israel, in an unconventional and asymmetric way. That approach was influenced by lessons learned in the 1980s when Iran was invaded by its neighbour Iraq. The eight-year war that followed was deadly and expensive. So since then, essentially the thinking is, okay. the Iranian government decided we're not going to let our soil be attacked again. But we also don't have a strong enough army and weaponry to be able to make that happen. So they've set up these allies who can create trouble if ever needed for their enemy. And we're seeing that really unfold in the the Israel-Hamas war since October 7th, how each of these groups, the Houthis in the Red Sea, Hezbollah in the northern border with Israel, are able to create headaches for Iran's enemies when it comes to the situation of war and conflict. However, the full extent of Iran's commitment to the coalition isn't clear. The Iranian state at times would like to emphasize the fact that these groups are autonomous and that they only support them because of the shared goal. But then when it comes to other instances, they do boast of their support that they provide to these groups. So it's a double-sided strategy when it comes to their relationship with the axis of resistance. An example of that mixed messaging followed Hamas's deadly attack on Israel that sparked the current war in Gaza. I actually believe U.S. intelligence that concluded that Tehran wasn't involved in the planning of that attack. And so we saw Iranian officials coming with two levels of claims. One is that this is something that they ideologically support. But at the same time, there was an opposite message saying that this was an independent 100% Palestinian operation. And that's your cue essentially saying that We weren't as much involved in the planning of this attack. And so they want to maintain some form of plausible deniability when it comes to the costs of the October 7th attack. Working in tandem doesn't mean that Axis members are unified. So the coalition is not necessarily seeing eye to eye on every single issue when it comes to the region. For example, in the Palestinian cause, we have seen differences in strategy or in ideology when it comes to talking points from Tehran and talking points from Hamas. Sometimes Hamas are more radical, sometimes Tehran is more radical. And so the coalition will remain loose But I think as long as Tehran is able to sort of lead and support and be in touch with all of them, they can continue as an axis. Nawant, you mentioned that uh, it's commonly perceived and described in U.S. politics that Israel is an asset to U.S. strategic interests in the region. But it's very interesting at the moment, it seems like, given the widespread regional anger about the war in Gaza and its consequences, the U.S. is having to intervene very extensively in the conflict, not just to resupply 
Israel with munitions and give it targeting information and defend it diplomatically at international fora. But also the U.S. now directly fighting the Houthis in Yemen on behalf of Israel, who have said themselves are acting in response to the war in Gaza. This past weekend, several U.S. service members were killed in the drone strike in Jordan uh, carried out by Iraqi militias, who also said they're acting in response to U.S. support in the war in Gaza. And finally, the U.S. actually has aircraft carriers and troops in the eastern Mediterranean, specifically to deter Hezbollah, which may intervene more forcefully in the conflict uh, without that deterrence from the U.S. provide there. So it seems like the U.S. is doing a tremendous amount to help Israel at the moment. But to the argument that Israel is beneficial to the U.S., it doesn't seem very clear what the U.S. is getting out of this. It seems a very lopsided uh, exchange in a way. Can you speak a bit about what you think continues to hold and drive this relationship on these terms, given the fact that the strategic utility is not clearly obvious at the moment? Well, I think the strategic utility goes beyond a moment. And again, I'm trying to understand the mindset in uh, in uh, the foreign policy establishment in Washington. I'm not trying to allocute as to the truth. But they perceive Israel to be a, a long-term uh, strategic asset in the Middle East of some importance. For one thing, the Israelis have very good intelligence in the region. Trump, when he was president, met with Sergei Lavrov and some other Russian officials and actually let it slip that the Israelis had placed someone high in the ISIL councils and, and that they were getting direct intelligence from ISIL planning through this Israeli agent. Apparently, the CIA was not able to do this, but the Israelis were. And uh, since ISIL during the Obama period was the major foreign policy uh, threat and uh, dictated a lot of Obama uh, policy in the Middle East, uh, the response to it and the attempt to destroy it, having you know the Israelis penetrate it like that was gold. And, and uh, I think behind the scenes and in ways that we don't hear about, there are lots of those kinds of things that the Israelis do for the United States. And, and so I perceive the Biden administration to feel that it can hold the status quo with regard to what, what the Americans call the axis uh, of resistance. Um, I, I prefer the alliance of resistance because we always use axis for uh, pejorative purposes. But uh, the Iranians have, over time, established uh, allies in in Lebanon and and Iraq and and uh, Yemen, as you say. Although th- these are very loose alliances, it's not a command and control kind of situation. Uh, the Houthis don't uh, take orders from Tehran, but they are allied on the basis of a common perception of of Israel and the United States as a threat to their interests. And the Biden administration came into office hoping to do a deal with the Alliance of Resistance uh, to bring them in from the cold. And I think there was a genuine hope that that could be done for various reasons. And, and it, it may have to do with, with Biden's acquiescence in uh, the views of some of the hawks around him. That didn't go forward in a big way. Um, and in fact, Local regional actors became tired of waiting for Biden to, to make this, this move. And, and so the Saudis reached out to the Iranians themselves, uh, through, through China. And, um, 
the Biden administration has been trying to work to extend uh, or had been trying to work to extend the ceasefire between the Saudis and the Houthis in Yemen. And that is now that struggle may may start back up. We don't know. Uh, but the U.S. has now taken the Saudi role of bombing Sana'a, I think, to very little effect. Uh, and um, so I, I, th- I think what the, what the Biden administration is trying to do is, is to hold the status quo against the uh, alliance of resistance through surgical interventions, bombing a base of uh, one of these uh, Shiite militias here and there time to time, uh, while they believe the Israelis are rolling up uh, Hamas. And, and, and I think they must understand that this can't go on for a very long time or, or the status quo simply will not hold. But that's what they're trying to do in, in the meantime. And so even though the Iraqi militias have killed American troops uh, at a base in, in Jordan near Syria, the response of Biden on Sunday uh, was uh, remarkably restrained. He said, we'll, we'll, we'll reply at a, a time and a place of our choosing. Uh, that's that's usually the way you would reply to a, a stray mortar hitting hitting a base and not not doing it, killing three American soldiers. Uh, that, that's not something that you would put off the response to a time and a place of your choosing. You would want to uh, go to war over it, and it's very clear that the Biden administration does not want to go to war over it, and uh, and that they're attempting uh, to find a way to to muddle through uh, this crisis. You also had uh, two U.S. Navy SEALs that, according to the uh, official reporting on it, went missing um, as part of the U.S. uh, military presence deployed um, in an effort to stop the Yemeni blockade of the Red Sea. And now they've officially been declared dead by the United States. So it's uh, in addition to those uh, those two. Now you have the three confirmed deaths of American service members in Jordan from this drone strike. I would say that uh, the significance here is uh, several uh, fold. First of all, the people who did this attack, the Americans blame a certain group in uh, Iraq uh, funded or backed by Iran. There's dozens of these groups all over uh, the region. Uh, There's almost as many of these groups around the region as there are American military bases around the region. I think there's something like 30 or 35 American military bases with something like 30,000, 40,000 uh, troops. And of course, when you add the ones that come in on the aircraft carriers, uh, it's more than that. So what you have to see this, you have to see this in the context of a regional situation with many American military installations, some of them killing and attacking Arabs and others, some of them are not. And you have to see the groups from uh, Arab countries, official state groups and uh, non-state actors like Hezbollah and Hamas and Ansarullah. That's the context in which we have to, uh, to see this. There are so many potential people who could have done this attack, uh, uh, which should make us wonder about why are there so many people who are potential attackers. Uh, it's because they see the American presence linked very close to what Israel is doing in Palestine. They see this as a threat, and they come right out and say it. The thing about the Islamic resistance in Iraq, like the uh, resistance axis, which is the broader Middle East coalition of Hezbollah, Hamas, Ansarullah, and Yemen, uh, the Islamic groups and uh, resistance groups in Syria and Iraq, 
their significance is that they come right out and they've said it so many times. We're not scared of being attacked. We're not um, um, put off by the U.S. and um, and Israeli threats. We're defending our, our territory. And if we're aggressed against, we're going to uh, fight back. This is unusual um, uh, in this region, but it's going on all the time. The, the Ansar Allah and Yemen have been saying the same thing. The U.S. went in there with and the U.K., the uh, the two great colonial powers in the Middle East of the last century, uh, both have been attacking Ansarullah targets uh, in Yemen, and the Ansarullah people say, you know, go ahead, attack, we don't care, and they keep uh, attacking back and hitting uh, ships and, um, and and trying to fire other places as well. So that's the context that we we have to look at, uh, um, and it's some of it is linked to Gaza, some of it was there before Gaza, which is another important uh, thing. And the, the Ansarullah in, uh, in Yemen and others have said, look, if the U.S. stops actively supporting the genocidal um, savage moves of Israel and Gaza, uh, we will uh, stop attacking American uh, targets. Um, it is significant that this is the first direct strike that killed uh, three Americans, uh, but that's uh, not as significant as the, as the, as the broader picture that uh, we have to look at. Rami Khoury, can you talk about the other countries and their response and where they stand vis-a-vis -vis the United States and Israel? For example, Jordan. I listened to the Jordan deputy prime minister yesterday saying this did not happen on Jordanian soil. It happened in Syria. But in fact, it looks like it did happen in Jordan and why that was relevant, because, of course, they're all very close right there on the border. As he said, if it happened on Jordanian soil, they would consider it an act of war. Yeah, um, Jordan uh, tries to stay out of these big conflicts. It's a small country. Uh, it has quite a sophisticated military capability. They spend a lot of money and attention on their security services, both internally and uh, regionally, their intelligence services, their technical capabilities, um, special forces, things like that. Um, and, and they try to not get directly involved in large-scale warfare, but to do a little um, you know, strategic pinpoint actions when necessary, either to protect themselves or to help uh, their allies like the U.S. and, uh, and, and others. Uh, it's hard to know uh, exactly where this attack came from. If the U.S. intelligence agencies have the information, they should, should make it public so people stop speculating. Uh, but Jordan is um, a country with a huge uh, territory on the borders with three, four countries, and it's very hard to patrol it. By the way, I know that area in northeastern Jordan quite well. I spent uh, many, many days there years ago, and I was writing books on archaeology, and I lived in Jordan. And there's two things I think people should recognize about this area. Uh, first of all, if you look at that aerial uh, photograph, which uh, you showed, uh, of the camp, uh, Tower 2, I think it's called, if you look at that photograph, then you go back into the archaeological uh, journals and look at pictures, aerial photographs of Roman and Byzantine camps that archaeologists have mapped in surveys, you find exactly the same thing. And this is a sign that these kinds of foreign military installations inside the region, especially on peripheral border areas, don't have a long lifestyle. Um, and they uh, will be abandoned because the local people don't want them there. Mm -hmm. um, so that, the second thing I'd say, that area is really fascinating because, uh, you know, people call it a desolate, desert area. It's a, the, 
this desert area now because of climate change and uh, overgrazing and things like that. But this was a strategically important region in the beginning of, of modern civilization as we know it in the Bronze Age. There's people who think that the Abraham's path came uh, through here um, uh, on, the, on his way into the, uh, what's known as the Promised Land. Uh, that this is an area developed early urbanism in the Bronze Age, walled large towns, sophisticated water systems, showing the human capabilities that have been in this area for about 5,000 years. Uh, so those are just two little side, side points I'd like to uh, throw in there. One, you mentioned that the Houthis are taking these strikes in the Red Sea and they're generating a tremendous amount of attention to themselves, negatively, obviously, from the US and the UK and so forth in various ways, but also in the region where they were not very popular before, they've become relatively popular in, in recent weeks and months. You see the Houthi spokespeople going on television, uh, becoming quite fixtures in social media and on regular media in the region. Because of a sense that they're standing up for the Palestinians, but also, by extension, a perception that they're standing up to the U.S. And there seems to be a very pronounced uh, view in the region that this is not just an Israeli war, but it's a U.S. war specifically. And we saw that in the statements of some of these Iraqi militia groups that claim responsibility for the attack on the base in Jordan as well, too. They view the U.S. as very intimately involved in the war, a direct participant in the war in Gaza even Whereas in the U.S., it's often uh, depicted that a more of an arm's length relationship, and people are sometimes surprised to see a retaliation against the U.S. directly for actions which are taken by Israel. Can you speak a bit about the sort of disconnect and how the U.S.-Israel relationship is viewed by people in the region as very hand in hand? Oh well, people in the region don't make a distinction. Uh, they they view even you know when the United States invaded Iraq. U.S. troops on the ground in Iraq were often referred to by the Iraqis as Israelis. And uh, the, the notorious incident in Fallujah, where uh, four contractors were attacked and, and, uh, and strung up, was carried out by uh, people in Fallujah who called themselves Iraqi Hamas. And part of the reason that they attacked those uh, U.S. contractors was because the Israelis were at the time conducting an assassination campaign against Hamas leaders. And so the, the American public has never viewed these events synoptically, you know, has not been able to see them in the same frame. But in the Middle East, uh, the United States and Israel are, are basically seen as one thing. And so when you hear in the United States that the Israelis have killed so many um thousands of people, the American public might say, well, that's, you know, is that really necessary? Maybe maybe the Israelis shouldn't be doing that. But in the Middle East, the, the, the comment would be that, why are the Americans doing this? And, and people are furious in the Middle East. I mean, their, their blood is boiling all through the region against the United States. This is not a completely new phenomenon, of course, and uh, we, we've seen moments in the past when there has been a lot of anger towards the U.S., in, in part because of its uh, unqualified support for Israeli impunity. But it, it is quite remarkable, the uh, the amount of, of anger. And and so, you know, it, it puts American allies in the region in a difficult position because 
the Saudi uh, government, uh, the government of the United Arab Emirates, the Jordanian government, they all hate Hamas. And nothing would please them better than for Netanyahu to succeed in destroying it. And so none of those governments has done more than criticize the war. Uh, and, and, you know, de facto, they, they agree with the war aim. But their publics are not on the same page. And uh, so the Saudis and the Jordanians who have a, a real population, you know, the United Arab Emirates is a postage stamp country with a million citizens and, and eight million uh, guest workers. It's in a different demographic situation. But the Saudis and the Jordanians, the, the governments really have to negotiate with their publics and their publics are furious. So you, you see people in, in Saudi Arabia, for instance, who uh, the government has demanded a ceasefire, even though the U.S. is opposed, uh, uh, and um, they have uh, criticized the conduct of the war. And they've they've said openly that you know you, you can forget about these Abraham Accords business until uh, the Palestinians are treated properly. That's for Saudi public consumption. I mean, they're they're trying to reassure their own public that that they are not villains in the peace. So not only does not only people in the region see the United States as more or less behind this war as 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 a, as a hundred percent backer of it and uh, uh, and the reason for which it can go on, but uh, the publics and the governments are are deeply split, and so that's why something like the Alliance of Resistance by sending out some drones and sort of committing some pinpricks against Western security gives them a great deal of cachet. And in a place like Iraq, you know, it could be consequential. They have elections and uh, uh, the militias are all also civil political parties. And they have, last I knew, was some 60 seats in parliament. The current prime minister, uh, al-Sudani, is beholden to the Shiite militias and their, their civil bloc in parliament. So there's likely a, a fair storm coming in relations between the United States and Iraq over all this. And, of course, what the Shiite militias want is not only to punish the U.S. for its involvement in Gaza, but also to push the remaining U.S. troops out of the region. So with their 2,500 troops in uh, Iraq, mainly doing now training and logistics for the Iraqi army and its continued mop-up operations against ISIL. There are some 900 U.S. troops in in Syria liaising with the, the YPG, the Kurdish leftist militia, and again, to make sure that ISIL doesn't come back to give support, some support to the Syrian Kurds, and, uh, and also maybe to block uh, Iranian and Shiite militia activity in, in southeast Syria. So the, the Shiite militias in, in Iraq are trying to push the Americans out and maybe hoping uh, that the U.S. response to something like uh, the attack on the uh, base in Jordan uh, will provoke uh, such a large rift between Baghdad and Washington that the troops will have to leave. Mm -hmm. 
Christian, you know very well that because this is a presidential election year, domestic politics are interfering with the decisions that the president has to make. And this idea that Donald Trump puts forward that his strongman presence in the White House would deter the kind of attack that killed American forces at the weekend, whether or not that's true, of course. So Joe Biden is now faced with trying to make a decision that responds to that as well as responding to the facts on the ground, trying to thread the needle of saying this action will look like a deterrent to stop other people trying to attack our troops in the region and it will also look like vengeance to a certain degree but not so much that it escalates the conflict in the region. Is it possible to achieve all of those aims? Look, I think it's very important for your listeners and viewers to understand that whatever Donald Trump says is not what is the fact. It's really important to tell people that he has essentially lied to the world and to the American people about foreign policy and domestic policy for, you know, ever since 2015, when he began his first campaign for president. And now he's coming back saying that I'm the strong man. The only people who that will appease are people like Putin, people like Kim Jong-un, people like, you know, all those people who he's, uh, Xi Jinping, for instance, all those people who he's expressed, you know, respect for. And so I think that, yes, President Biden, if it was me, and it's not me, thank goodness, who has to make this very, very difficult decision, I would be very troubled by the, as I said it earlier, the baying for a war on Iran by certain quarters of the extreme right wing in Congress. At the same time, having to do something to, as I said, deter it. So I don't want to say what it will be because I don't know. And But I do think, yes, he has a difficult needle to thread. And I think the fact that it's happening in an election year is difficult. But more to the point, I think it's not even the election year, for me anyway, as a, as a foreign policy um, and, and sort of a, a war journalist, it's that there's so much war in the region now. They don't know which way to look. They don't know what to do right now. And and not only that, you have Donald Trump and his allies nixing a border deal that was about to pass between the Democrats and, and the Republicans, which means that Ukraine will not get the weapons it needs to actually defend not just its own self and its own democracy, but our democracy and, and U.S. national security. So this is a very, very complex and very dangerous moment. And it is a real problem that it's being muddled and fake news by by the MAGA wing. Now, we definitely need to talk about the southern border and the way it's being tied into American foreign policy. But just before we do, let me ask you this, sticking with Iran. And this is a genuine query. I don't know the answer to this. When the Pentagon is planning some kind of retaliatory military strike, is it possible at the same time for diplomats to be talking to the leadership in Tehran and saying, we're going to have to take action. You've forced our hand. This will happen. But please do not retaliate. Understand that this is us, you know, responding to the fact that our troops have been killed. This is not us trying to escalate a conflict. And can you be talking to them, trying to calm things down at the same time as you're escalating your military action? Look, I don't know because I'm not in the room, but I do know that the Iranians have said, if you attack us, whatever you tell us about not wanting a war. And remember, well, we'll get to this in a minute. The, the U.S. keeps saying we don't want another war with Iran. But if you attack us, we're going to retaliate. I mean, that's what they've said publicly. What happens 
what the reaction is from the United States and then from Iran, we just don't know yet. But it is a very, very difficult uh, situation. And there are many experts who are calling for, you know, proportionality. And again, remember that Donald Trump did not want to attack Iran when many on his right flank said that he should over various things. And all the way back to the George W. Bush administration, when again, Israel and others uh, were, were and his own right wing were urging him to attack Iran. Remember, it was going to be Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, you know, and uh, and he didn't uh, because they didn't think that that was going to raise the security of the American people, national security. And let's just not forget, it's one thing to be hitting non-state actors, the Houthis, for instance, in Yemen and their bases, uh, the Iran-backed militias, wherever they may be, in, in Iraq, in, in Syria and elsewhere. It's another thing to attack a sovereign nation with a big military and a huge country. And I'm sure President Biden is looking at, you know, weeks of, of attacking bases in, um, in, uh, in Yemen and seeing no response and no, no, you know, no end to the, to the Houthis action. So if they having trouble with the Houthis, you can imagine how it's going to be trying to direct firepower to Iran. Look, if you want me to bet, I would say they're going to choose some kind of other route. I may be wrong, but in, you know, since 1979, when the Islamic Republic came and and basically cited America as its enemy, remember the great Satan, America has never struck Iran and vice versa. Iran has never struck America. So it would be a massive new war in the Middle East. You know Iran well, obviously, and your your background, your heritage. Do you, do, how, how rational are the Iranian leadership? How open do you think to uh, the world of, of diplomacy and, and very, pressure. Very rational. I think they're very rational. And you've seen that in 46 years. Not the politics most of the West likes, <laughs> but they are about survival of their regime and the uh, the projection of whatever power and influence they can. So in that regard, you know, they would rather stay, they would rather survive than have any kind of existential threat uh, posed on them. We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, laying out the overview of the danger of escalation in the Middle East. Democracy Now! also laid out some of the contextual details of the Houthi movement in Yemen. The inquiry broke down the role of Iran. Intercepted looked more closely at the influence of the U.S. Democracy Now! highlighted the context of the region being dotted with dozens of U.S. military bases. Intercepted explained the impact of the Israel-U.S. relationship, and Americast spoke with Christian Amanpour about the U.S.'s attempt to both retaliate but not escalate while risking a major new war in the Middle East with Iran. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Intercepted diving into the relationship between Germany and Israel in the context of the history of the Holocaust. The only way forward for Germany ultimately is to have a different view of the significance of the Holocaust. If you saw these events uh, as of universal significance, and then you were determined that they never happen again, then they have to never happen again to Namibians and Palestinians, as well as never happening again to Jews. 
and the Majority Report analyzed a mainstream coverage debate about the conflict. The West needs to start to understand that you can't just go around playing cowboys in the world. There are consequences to your actions. You cannot just go around bombing people's countries, ignoring international law and expect no repercussions. For every cause, there is a consequence. To hear that and have all of our bonus contents delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey Jay, this is Aaron from what I now understand to be the most important county in the United States, uh, which is to say the Philadelphia suburbs of Delaware County. Boy, it's great to be the center of attention every four years, isn't it? Uh, in any case, <laughs> wanted to uh, respond to the recent show about the you know, various strengths and weaknesses of the Biden campaign as it exists in this moment. And um, A, I want to really thank you for your summary at the end, because while I fully understand that that was a disappointing reaction from J.B. Pritzker when the Humanist Report immediately went into, oh, we're doomed mode. I really started gritting my teeth because that, like, it's just not helpful to think that way this year and for reasons that, you know, I think we all understand. But the point being, I appreciate your explanation of campaign literacy, we'll say, not necessarily media literacy. So, yeah, one of the reasons I've been a member for so long is the way you were able to just pull everything together. Uh, the other thing that just keeps coming to mind in every discussion I've had over the last you know, few months, you know, particularly with some friends and, and family, is what the old progressive blog, Lawyers, Guns, and Money, used to refer to as Green Lanternism, uh, which I'm not a big comics fan, but as I understand, the Green Lantern is a comics hero who can create things or cause things to happen purely by the force of his will focused through some sort of magic ring. And this is a, a thing that they frequently criticized people on the left for back in the day, which you know, it's taken me a while to warm up to the theory, but I'm really beginning to understand it, that, well, we just need Obama to get up and talk about this thing, and then it's going to happen. And, and you, you really you see it every time there's a big presidential election, and I really do feel like it's a thing that is a bit of a problem on the left because I feel like we ought to know better. I mean, you know, Trump engages in Green Lanternism all the time, too. He's always saying, well, you know, I'm going to come in and I'm going to fix, you know, Ukraine and fix the border and this and that, and nothing ever happens. But whatever, that, that's not our problem. But I do really feel like on the left, we have a similar sort of idea that, oh, well, if the president just says this, he can end things we don't like, create things we do like, and bend other sovereign nations to our will, which, A, I don't think we should want, because that sounds an awful lot like a king to me, and we had a war about that about 250 years ago that I think we were on the right side of. And also, yeah, it's just, it takes so much of the energy that we really need to be focusing all the way up and down the ballot, and especially locally. I mean, the one thing we saw last year and the year before in the midterms is we can change so many things by focusing locally to make it more likely that the president we get, whether it's Biden or in the future, someone like 
Gretchen Whitmer, or Josh Shapiro, whoever, can do the things we want them to do because they have Congress on their side. You know, we flipped school boards, we flipped state houses. As we are heading into this era where the Supreme Court is kicking everything back to states' rights, we need those things in our column to survive. And so uh, I'm also going to grab from another, just happened to listen to it directly before, the You're Wrong About podcast was talking about specifically the, you know, the pro-life, pro-choice movement in the context of the current campaign. And the guests they had on said, you know what, the thing to do this year to keep, as she put it, the trauma of the world from residing in your body is to get involved locally in something, whether it's abortion rights or queer rights or electing a better city council or state representative. We're going to need that. And so keep high hopes and high expectations for the president, but definitely make sure that you are flipping as many seats locally as you can, because it's going to take all of us in every state to make that happen. All right, that's just my pitch. That's my watchword for 2024. Get involved. And I know altogether we will find great ways to do that. Thanks for everything you do. Stay awesome. Thanks to all those who call into the voicemail line or write in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record or text us a message at 202-999-3991 or send an email to j at bestoftheleft.com. So thanks to Erin for her message. I, I love green lanternism and uh, you know obviously agree with with her analysis that you know that is an idea that is sort of for the impatient right whereas real results come from slow progress and getting down into the dirt and and doing the work right and there's actually a silly example of this playing out right now in congress concerning the border slate published an interview under the headline so many people agree that joe biden should quote shut down the border to stop migration. There's just one problem with that. And it's discussing the bipartisan legislation that's sort of making its way through that is, you know, supposed to give the president the authority to simply shut down the border if unauthorized crossings reach a certain threshold. Of course, the only problem is that that's a ridiculous framing because there's really no such thing as shutting down something that is already happening in an unauthorized way to begin with. That wouldn't require greater political will or a strongman president. It would require a magic wand. And that's the fantasy that always plays out, mostly on the right regarding immigration, but it happens elsewhere, that you know we just need to believe stronger or something, ignoring all of the complicated systemic issues that are much harder to solve, but would actually have a greater impact on whatever issue you're trying to fix. On the other hand, real success does sometimes require both. I mean, think about the Supreme Court. I don't think it would be right to say either that the far-right takeover of the court was solely the result of the decades-long working and planning by the Federalist Society, nor was it the hard-nosed power play of Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans to stop Obama from appointing a third justice or what really seemed like a you know basic bribe to Anthony Kennedy to convince him to step down during Trump's presidency, it was clearly a combination of all of those things. You do need long-term ground game planning running all the time. 
And also, you have to be prepared to play hardball and occasionally use whatever force is necessary to push through your preferred agenda. So to fully back up Aaron's point, I definitely think it's appropriate to be on the side of demanding greater, you know, let's say backbone from elected Democrats on a pretty frequent basis, but to lose sight of the bigger mechanisms at play is to really fail to understand how politics works. And I might add that it's those people who really just don't understand how things are supposed to work who end up getting frustrated and start thinking, well, I'd happily give up all my personal power and influence if someone would just say that they will fix everything as though with a magic wand. And of course, that's the most dangerous scenario of all. And something like a third or 40% of the country has, has basically done that now, which actually gets to the heart of why our current disjointed and hyper-targeted information system that is filled to the brim with falsities and propaganda is so dangerous because it limits the ability of average people to become well-informed citizens who understand how the system works, which is what is required to maintain a democracy. But, you know, that's a discussion for another day. As always, keep the comments coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts or questions about this or anything else. You can leave us a voicemail or send us a text at 202-999-3991 or simply email to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and Ben, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who already support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships. You can join them by signing up today at bestoftheleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good and often funny bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. You'll find that link in the show notes, along with a link to join our Discord community, where you can also continue the discussion. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.